with you here today at Berean Bible Fellowship. And I know maybe you expect a visiting speaker to say that, but that's the honest truth. I have really been excited about this opportunity to uh, be here today because uh, you already know a little history. It was mentioned earlier that uh, in 1989 when Pastor Palmer left Calvary Independent Baptist Church in Huntington, the church there called me to be the pastor. And so I succeeded him there and have been there for 29 years until just August when uh, we finished our ministry there. So Pastor Palmer and I, I think maybe this has also been said to you, um, we have a unique relationship and by that I mean good. And uh, that's why it's unique. Usually uh, pastors and their predecessors don't often have a good relationship. For some reason there just often seems to be that competitiveness or that friction between them and we've never had that and uh, we've always had a great relationship. I would say that uh, some of the visits that I've had with him by telephone uh, since we stepped aside there at Calvary have been some of the most precious times I've ever spent with him and hopefully next Lord's Day we're going to be able to actually physically rendezvous um, at a church where I'll be speaking next Sunday and uh, that was previously arranged before uh, Brother Holt was in touch with me about today. But uh, oftentimes when the Palmers are able to get out, they circulate around to different churches. And he was unaware of this particular church, so I told him about it. And he said, well, I know right how to get there. And I'm really hoping it works out. Uh, he's strong enough and well enough to be able to do that. And we uh, look forward to seeing him and Mrs. Palmer, God willing, next Sunday and then going out to dinner and spending some uh, quality time of fellowship. On the phone yesterday, I can tell you we spoke for 42 minutes. So that's about as good of a visit as you often get in, in calling on someone. I happen to know that just because I, I got ready to put the phone down and I looked at it and it was before I punched the end button on the call, it was still clicking off the time. And I told my wife after that telephone call, I said, you see why I don't get anything done? I, you know, I, I have some things on my list to do and people call, but, you know, it's just uh, sometimes it's really important to take time for people. And uh, Pastor Palmer has always shown an interest in me. He called me uh, my first Sunday morning at Calvary. Uh, he, he had this way of knowing, can you understand why, exactly where I would be at a certain moment. And so he called me right there at the church and I answered the phone, Calvary Independent Baptist Church. He said, Brother Tom, this is Jack Palmer, and we had prayer together on the phone. Well, I'll tell you something. The last Sunday we were at Calvary, which was the 19th of August, um, normally I don't go to the church office. It's never my custom to go to the church office and look for messages on the phone. I'm glad for someone else to do that, but I, I would never want to be distracted with those things from getting at the things that I really needed to do. And my wife just happened to go in the office and the message light on the phone was blinking and she went to retrieve the message and the next thing I know I hear her saying, get in here, you want to hear this? <laughs> I had no clue what it was. It was Pastor Palmer. He had called on my last Sunday and uh, it was just so sweet. We actually got my, I think you did it, we got our cell phone out and recorded the thing so I would have it to keep. So that's a little bit of our background, and so through him, you can maybe guess a little something about me, but uh, I will tell you just a little bit more. I really want to get to the message, but at the same point, I also want to uh, gain a little bit of your confidence and a little bit of rapport uh, with you by telling you just a little bit about who we are. So you know now that we've been for 29 years in Huntington, 
and uh, we moved there from northwest suburban Chicago where I was on staff at a, at a church there. And uh, when it came time to, uh, which I had told the pastor there when I came that I really wanted to be a pastor myself someday, when it came time to do that uh, and we got ready to leave, uh, the church there made contact with us and one thing led to another and we came over and have been there really ever since. Uh, we came to Huntington with one child, our oldest son, James. And uh, he was under a year, actually, when we came to Huntington. But the other two were born there. So uh, we have our oldest son, James, and he's approaching 30. But he is uh, a software engineer with a company called Braintree, when you probably have not heard of that, but probably everyone here has heard of PayPal. And Braintree is a subsidiary of PayPal, so that's what he does. They have two children. Those are our two grandchildren, um, two little girls. One's a toddler, one's an infant. And they live in Greenville, South Carolina. And although the company is Chicago-based, you know, meetings today are all collaborations via the Internet. <laughs> you know, it's, so he is able to work where he lives and then periodically is required to go to Chicago when they need him there. Um, our daughter in the middle is Ruth and uh, I thought I would bring along this is her prayer card she's a missionary she's been on the field for a little over a year now with Baptist Midmissions her first term um, in Honduras in the uh, second largest city people said aren't you San Pedro Sula and people said aren't you worried about her going there it, it, it for it I guess it vies with Chicago as being the murder capital of the world. You know, it just sort of depends on which you read. Seems to me like Chicago might have the edge. But uh, aren't you worried about her going there? And of course, our attitude always was, well, we just trust God and we need to be in his will and reasonable precautions have been taken. She works with another missionary family there. But anyway, she's there and has been there since last June, so a little over a year. And uh, we're really excited about that. Our uh, youngest son is John, and uh, he is married. They have no children yet, but he lives in Danville, Illinois. And uh, I, I guess really as any father and as any pastor, uh, I am really excited about the fact that when they, they needed to be in Wisconsin because uh, his wife Natalie, when they got married, had one year left in college, was Maranatha Baptist University. I'm sure some of you know Maranatha. The others who graduated from Bob Jones. But uh, she had one more year as a nurse, and so they needed to stay there, and he worked for an outfit there. And I really don't know except to attribute it to God. Uh, well, our, one of our former assistants, a man by the name of Paul Rebert, pastors First Baptist Church in Danville, Illinois, and he's a great recruiter. And one of the, one of the days that he and my son just happened to be talking on the phone, he said, why don't you consider coming to Danville? Long story short, that they are there. He works for a company called Fastenal. Any of you heard of Fastenal? Okay, and uh, so he works there. And we are really excited about the fact that they are there in that church because uh, I think any father longs, and certainly any pastor does, to know that his children are under good care and in a good Bible-believing church where they can uh, serve the Lord and be excited about that. So that's enough of that. Um, maybe we have more time. I did bring one other thing Show and tell, see? Um, I, just little ways for you maybe to get acquainted. Um, I brought two gospel tracks that I wrote. Um, 
the first one is in over here. It's in my left hand. And Brother Wirtz, where did he get to? I'm left-handed. So I saw that back in the prayer room. I always noticed that. I used to brag about it until I saw President Obama was, but <laughs> maybe I shouldn't have said that. But anyway, this particular tract is called The Real Point. And uh, for those of you who are deer hunters, you can kind of see the play on words, The Real Point. It tells the story of when in 2005, I went into the woods to go deer hunting and fell 18 feet out of a permanent deer stand and uh, busted myself up pretty good, to be quite honest with you. And, uh, but it uses the opportunity to tell the story and to make the real point, which is that when I went into the woods that day, I knew I was right with God. I knew I was in God's will. And if I had been killed when I fell out of that tree, which could quite easily have happened, I knew where I would be. I knew I would be in heaven. And so this is a gospel tract that does that. And then several years later, I wrote another one. This one is, some of you can really identify with this. This one is called A Loss That Hurts. It tells a story about a 10-point that I shot and wasn't able to recover. And I think that uh, then it sort of goes from there to talking about the, the parable of the prodigal son and how uh, it hurts. That loss really hurts. Any, any hunter with real ethics will tell you that. That loss really hurts. But there's a loss that's worth, worse. And that's to go out of this world not knowing Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. That's the greatest loss. And so it, it uses that springboard to tell the story of the gospel. Okay, so John chapter 6. If you'd turn there with me in your Bibles, that was a little more than I intended to do, but um, since you don't know me, I thought, well, maybe it's, maybe it's time well spent. We read verses 51 through 69 a while ago, and uh, I would like to take the opportunity now just to read one other, or one of the verses that was read before. It's actually the text for our message today. This is verse 67, so focus in on John 6:67, if you will, with me. Here the Bible says, Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Just ponder that question for a minute. Will ye also go away? Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the moving of God in our hearts and lives. Thank you for what you did to bring us to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as personal Savior. Thank you for what you've done in our families to bring our children to faith in Christ. Thank you for what you've done to bring others around us as we stumble along and try to be a gospel witness for you to faith in Christ. And we thank you for the assembling together of God's people. We thank you for those that are eager listeners as the Bereans were. And I pray, Father, that you would just bless the word of God now. I pray, Father, you would just uh, loose me of all the weaknesses and the hindrances and the limitations of the flesh. And just give me the ability to speak the word of God with liberty and practicality, and power today. For I pray these things in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. I want you to take the opportunity just to think a little bit about your knowledge of the Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Of course, they tell the story of Jesus and his ministry while he was on the earth. Many times, people referred to Jesus as the Master. I kind of like that. Other times, people referred to Jesus as Rabbi. Did you know that both of those are really the same term? 
the rabbi is just a, an Aramaic term. It means teacher. They both mean teacher. So when we refer to Jesus as the master, I don't know what we think we're talking about, but what we really are talking about, what it really means is the teacher. And so many of Jesus' followers knew him exactly that way as the teacher. Of course, Jesus was a preacher. But as a teacher, obviously, Jesus Christ was a master teacher. So we'll make a little play on those two words. No one did it better than the Lord Jesus Christ. I have a series of messages that I have been working on for some time that my title is The Penetrating Questions of Jesus. Unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to quite finish this series at Calvary. I had, oh, I don't know, five, six messages left to go. So you aren't getting one I've preached before. You're getting the next one because I just have a zeal to finish that series and believe that God led me and directed me in that. But you know what? Oftentimes, any public speaker would tell you this, and, and we found it to be true even in our own lives. Someone can ask a well taken question and it has a way of driving home the point that we want to get to in a way that maybe nothing else quite can do and if you read the gospels you will find time after time after time that Jesus posed questions to people he posed questions to his detractors many times he posed questions to the Pharisees and others who were his opponents his adversaries he posed questions to the disciples because it created teaching moments, which is exactly what we have here. And just with people in everyday walks of life, Jesus often posed a question. You remember the rich young ruler, and Jesus said, Why callest thou me good? Did you ever stop to ponder the point that he was making by asking that question and, and the message that would come from that? Well, that's what this series is all about. I want to take you back to John chapter 4. Just to illustrate for a moment, because in John's Gospel, there are already two good ones that we could have looked at here this morning. First of all, um, this is one that Brother Holtz uh, called attention to here on Wednesday night, but John chapter 4 and verse 35, if you notice the punctuation, and this is correct really, when Jesus spoke to them, this is a question. We have a way of quoting this verse and we don't take it as a question, but if you notice carefully, it's punctuated that way. Jesus said to them, say not ye... There are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your field, eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already unto harvest. You realize he was asking a question there. He was probing them. He was talking about, isn't this what you typically do? Isn't this what you typically do? You say, well, the harvest is later, and it becomes an excuse. And that's sort of the point that he's driving home there. We don't have time to talk about that. Chapter 5 and verse 6 is the second of them that I alluded to. Look at this. Jesus comes up to the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. He finds there a man that by all intents and purposes that we can understand from the story, he does not know. It appears to be random except for the fact that nothing is ever random with God. He walks up to this man who is one of a multitude of sick people and he says to him in verse number 6, When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? Did you ever stop to ponder what he was getting at there? Here's a man that's been sick for years. He's been in that condition 38 and a half years, it says. 
Seems strange, doesn't it, to ask somebody who's been sick like that for all that time, do you want to be well? But there was a point that he was making because there is a strange sort of a sense in which we have a way of settling down, even though sin doesn't satisfy and even though it's not fulfilling in our lives, we have a strange way of settling down with our lifestyle, failed though it is, and don't really have any interest in real change. And that's what Jesus was asking that man. Do you have any real interest in change? In the moment that it was clear that he said, well, my problem is not that I'm not interested in change. My problem is I don't have anybody to help me. As soon as Jesus saw that he was sincere and was interested, it was pursued. Jesus ultimately pursued him even after he left later, I think, to bring him closer and closer, maybe fully, to faith in himself. Well, that's to give you some idea of what this is all about. Now, come to verse 67 in John chapter 6. Got a question here. Jesus asks of the disciples, will ye also go away? Should think about that for a moment. That's the title of the message this morning, will ye also go away? But it's a question. Well, at first blush, when you think about what is Jesus saying? He's speaking to the disciples. We've already seen in the context that there were some that murmured, verse 41. We didn't read all of these verses, but it says the Jews murmured at him when he said, I am the bread of life which came down from heaven. So some of his more adversarial listeners already were complaining and murmuring at what he had had to say. Then we work down to verse 61, and it says that Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured. So that's not good, really. That's not good when we as God's people begin to join the, the cavil of, of people who are adversarial to Jesus and murmur ourselves. And then, and we read as we look down a little bit further, that the Lord probed this. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying, who can hear it? And ultimately, we read down in verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Well, that'd be a little discouraging, wouldn't it? think about it. So at first blush, this question seems to betray a little bit of consternation, uh, discouragement, maybe frustration on Jesus' part. I don't think it's wrong to use words like that. I think we have to understand that uh, Jesus certainly came and took to himself human flesh, and so Jesus is not only God, that is his deity, but there is his humanity. It's just that Jesus is sinless doesn't mean that Jesus didn't experience the same types of emotions that you and I do, frustration. At times, Jesus was angry. And uh, it's just that Jesus never sinned when he was angry, and that's hard not to do, isn't it? So at first blush, that's what we get from this. But what I want to do after we develop this a little bit and, and do a little bit with the context, because you know a, a, a text without a context is a pretext. And so I think it's important for us to spend a little time there and be sure we're on solid ground, we understand what's going on in the passage. What I think I would like to talk to you a little bit about today and what I think the Lord's trying to get across is lessons to do with gospel work. Or you could say Christian service. But if you've been involved in Christian service, even just trying in a devoted way to live the Christian life, or being a witness to people, or if you happen to be in a more elevated situation with service full-time, or you have an office in the church, you teach Sunday school, something like that. Do you ever notice there's times when it can get discouraging? It really can. And uh, so it's important to offset that with the encouraging things, which is exactly what Jesus does in this passage. So 
We're going to talk about discouragement a little bit, but we're certainly not going to leave it there because we don't come here to be discouraged and leave discouraged. We come here to be built up and lifted up and edified and encouraged, right? So that's what we want to do. So first of all, there's two main thoughts I want to get across this morning. We're going to talk a little bit about hard words. Did you notice they said that? They said that to Jesus. Many therefore, verse 60 of his disciples, when they heard this, said unto him, this is a hard saying. Hard words, difficult to understand. Not only difficult to understand, but even seemingly problematic in what Jesus is saying when he referred to himself as the bread of life and said that you had to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Uh, a little difficult for them. This is a hard saying, they said, complained about it. Jesus had said that if you had to, you had to eat his flesh and drink his blood in order to have eternal life. We read that verse. Look at verse 53 again. Jesus said, Verily, verily I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. What would you think if you heard that? But if you know and think about how Jesus handled himself, there were in fact many times when Jesus seemed to speak in a puzzling if not an off-putting manner when he dealt with people. I don't mean Jesus was impolite. I don't mean that. I just mean that there were times when Jesus, for example, Matthew chapter 13, Jesus, this is the great discourse in Matthew's gospel that contains the, what we call the parables of the kingdom, right? And there are seven of those, the first of which is kind of key for our understanding. It's the parable of the sower. Well, Jesus hauled off and told that parable of the sower and his disciples looked at him and said you've got this crowd of people here why do you speak to them in parables remember that but Jesus had a purpose he said well to you it's given to know the, the truth of the kingdom of heaven to them it's not given and the Lord knows what he was doing it was a sense in which Jesus ingeniously is able to declare truth to people put it out them to see put it out there to see what they will do with it and it, it, it really becomes something of a test, does it not? That's really what was going on in this passage. When those people heard that hard saying, did they really think that Jesus was a cannibal? I mean, really. I mean, they might have thought some strange things about him, but did they really think he was advocating cannibalism? Well, let me ask you, do you? Well, of course not. Here's another little saying or lesson that we can go by. When the plain sense of scripture makes sense, seek no other sense. But the plain sense of that doesn't seem to make sense. So when you encounter a situation like that, well, you realize, okay, I've got to dig a little deeper. I've got to listen a little better. I've got to search. I've got to pray. That's the test, see? How earnest are we? How, how much are we really committed or do we just sort of use that as an excuse? These, these people in this multitude, well, oh, that's a hard saying. We can't listen to that. This guy's nuts. And it really just becomes something of an excuse. I'm off the hook. I don't really have to pay attention. I don't really have to be concerned about, oh, you've heard people say this before. Nobody can understand the Bible. Oh, it's full of all these contradictions. These are just excuses that people give because it's easier to do that than not to have to really come to grips with spiritual truth. Right? So that's what's going on in this. And Jesus had to deal with the fact that so many people are insincere listeners. Go back to the very beginning of the chapter and just look at verse 2. I think you'll see this. 
uh, all through we find that there was a great multitude of people. It's John chapter 6. But here it says that a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles which he did on them that are diseased. Nothing wrong, I suppose, with desiring to be well. But people were interested in Jesus not necessarily for the spiritual truth that he was conveying, but for what he could do for them. And we find this again. Look in verse number 14. You'll love this one because, uh, you know, it's, it's getting to be the political season. But after Jesus had worked the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, it says in verse 14, Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth, that prophet which should come into the world. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, what were they saying? Boy, he'd make a good candidate. Let's get him and put him up there. He'll be able to galvanize the people. He'll be able to lead us in an insurrection and throw off the Roman yoke of bondage. Let's put him up there. That's when Jesus exit stage left. You know, it's up to a mountain to be with the Father alone to pray. So you have people who are interested in physical needs, what they can get from God in terms of physical needs. Then you have people that use religion as a vehicle for the political. I don't think you have to divorce the two, but I don't think you should use the things of the Lord just as a political vehicle. And, you know, there's a, a lot of politicians that about this time start warming up with some of those, those catchphrases, and that's bothersome. And then you come over to verse 26, and you find a third thing. Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, You seek me not because ye saw the miracles. In other words, not to get at the deeper spiritual truth that's behind both the miracle and me, who I am, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. Well, so now we've got people interested in physical needs. We've got people interested in temporal needs. We've got people interested in a spirit, uh, temporal needs, physical needs, political ideas. It's, uh, if you can think of it this way, vending machine Christianity. Now, I don't mean any harm, but look at your mission board for a minute, and, and instead of that having the sacred purpose for which it is, let's use it as an illustration for a minute. If you turn it the other way, and so it's vertical now, it's like walking up to a great big vending machine. Well, if you put in your money, what can you get? Potato chips or any number of other things, candy bars. But now if you start likening this to spiritual things, well, what if you add to that? What if in the mix of the different things you can select is patience? Nah, not much interested in patience. What if it's discipline? Nah, not much interested in that. What if it's salvation? Nah. But people want all these things from God, but they don't really want the deeper spiritual truth. And so a guy walks away with potato chips, candy bars, all kinds of things, but he chose not to pursue the more important spiritual truths. He chose to pursue the things that, it's what, what can I get from God? And Jesus, finds, Jesus finds an ingenious way to springboard off of this feeding of the 5,000, to use that as a way to convey deeper spiritual truth to put it out before people in such a way that the truth was there. In fact, not only is the truth there, but there are invitations to come to the Savior because he says, I am the bread of life. And he, draw, he says to them that you come to me. 
and I can give you eternal life. It's all put out there for them, but it's couched in such a way that the person who's really not interested in pursuing it just throws it off and says, this is a hard saying. Can't, can't, really, can't really listen to that. So that's what Jesus is doing here. Verse number 27, you see that labor not, he says, for the meat that perisheth. Don't be concerned. I mean, we have to be somewhat concerned, but that's not really the thing that we need more than anything. He says, instead for the meat, the food that endureth unto everlasting life. And look at what he says, which the Son of Man shall give you, for him the hath the Father sealed. God the Father sealed. Well, did they hear that? Or are they just consumed with the more temporal things? Yeah, he's a great guy. He can take five loaves and two small fish and feed a multitude. That's great. But then he starts talking about eternal life, and, well, he starts talking about eating the flesh and drinking the blood of the Son of Man. Look in verse 35 and see what Jesus says. He says in John 6:35, Jesus saith unto them, I am the bread of life. Do you know that John's gospel has seven I am sayings? This is the first one. I am the bread of life. And he says to them, he that cometh to me. Do you hear the invitation? He that cometh to me shall never hunger. And he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Well, do you know this is exactly, this is the master teacher. He's doing exactly the same thing that he did in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. He took the figure of water. He's sitting there, wearied with his journey. It's about noontime. This woman approaches. The disciples have gone into the village. You know the story to buy food. And he's sitting there, and the woman walks up, and he says, give me to drink. What's he really after? Well, he probably could use a drink of water. But he's after something a whole lot more. So if you turn back just a page or two and look at John chapter 4 and verse 14, let's read the verse where it becomes clear. He says, but whoso drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up unto everlasting life. The woman said, sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. If you look back over in John, where we are in our context, you'll find a similar reaction. He says to them in verse 35, Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. And they said, Lord, evermore, give us this bread. So Jesus is a master at taking something simple, ready at hand, and using it as an illustration to bring to bear truth concerning himself, that if a person is interested, now think back for a moment about the woman at the well. She went through all kinds of rigmarole, right? I mean, she said, well, you know, your father, you Jews say that, that in Jerusalem is where we ought to offer, and she threw up that excuse. Well, you know, we've got this divide between Jews and, and the Samaritans. All the stuff that she went through to make excuses, and finally, Jesus said to her, go call your husband. She said, I have no husband. He said, well, you've had five. The guy you're with now isn't your husband. That's the, tr that's the only true thing you've said. Sir, I perceive thou art a prophet. <laughs> Don't you love it? I mean, she's starting to get the point a little bit. And she hung on, and she kept listening until finally 
she was so captivated and so taken in her heart with the truth that Jesus had presented to her that she went off into the city where apparently the men knew her quite well. <laughs> and said, come see a man who told me all things ever I did. Is not this the Christ? And the grammar of that in the original is constructed in such a way that it, it expects a positive answer. She's saying, this is the Christ. I'm not kidding you. Come out here. You've got to hear this guy. Now, what are these people here going to do in John chapter 6? That Jesus says, I am the bread of life. But because there are so many insincere followers in the crowd, he couches it in such a way, and he starts talking about eating the flesh and drinking the blood. Okay, we've we got to get off of this because we, we don't have a lot more time, but let me just try to draw it together like this. So let's think about that piano right there and the top of that piano as if it, the top of that, a little narrow for the illustration, but that's okay. Let's say it's a, it's a tabletop. And uh, let's say the preacher goes long and it's 1230. That's really long, right? And you're start, uh, starting to get hungry. And so I have some wonderful homemade bread. You know the stuff that's really good. I mean the stuff that you get that and it's almost like dessert. And I have it there. And I have a nice cold Dasani water. I mean, you can tell it's cold because it's just begun to sweat a little bit. That's when they really look good, you know? You're hot and thirsty. And I don't think it's taking too much liberty with the illustration to say, and I've got some meat there because Jesus had the two small fish. You put this together, now I've got a fish sandwich or I've got roast beef sandwich, whatever. It sounds good, doesn't it? But here's the problem, folks. You know, you don't get any good out of the water until you drink it. You can sit there and look at it all day long. It does you no good. All you're going to do is salivate. And the same thing with the bread. It doesn't do you any good. So in the literal realm, how do you get the blessing and how do you get the benefit from the water? You drink it. How do you get the benefit and the blessing from the bread? You eat it. In the spiritual realm, the same thing is true. You have to partake of this water to be blessed by it. You have to partake of this bread to be blessed by it. In the spiritual realm, that's exactly what Christ is saying. You come unto me. You partake of me. He's not, being, he's not talking in cannibalistic terms. He's talking in figurative spiritual language. And you can really tell this. One of the verses that we read also, I mean, there are many ways to tell this, but have a look-see at verse uh, 55. And he says this. This seems kind of like an, uh, just kind of a, an ordinary verse, but there's more to it than what maybe you think. He says, for my flesh is meat indeed. Notice the word indeed. It's repeated. And my blood is drink indeed. All right, so if we were to use a synonym for that, that's a definite, accurate, would also be a definite, accurate, accurate translation of that word in the original language, it would be like this. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. It's apparent, see, he keeps throwing it out there that I'm not talking about the literal, I'm talking about the spiritual, I'm talking about something more beyond. I'm talking about eternal life and how to have it. So many times he made this point clear. Let's just do this and we'll finish up with this. Verse 34, have a look. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Jesus said, all right, you want it? He said, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that and he that, what is the next word? Believeth. 
Well, he'll partake of Christ by believing on him. That's how you come to know the Lord as your personal Savior, by believing on him, isn't it right? Isn't John the gospel of belief? Doesn't it say at the end of the gospel of John, many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, but these are written that you might, what's the next word? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that what? Believing you might have life through his name. Isn't that what you did to be saved? If you are saved, didn't you come to him and make a sincere, genuine confession of your sins and put your faith and trust in him as your personal savior? Isn't that what you did? All right, let's look at it again. Because he says it so many times it's hard to miss if you want to hear what he has to say. Verse 40, look there. I have to get on the right page, sorry. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son, and what's that next word? Believeth on him, may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Look at verse 47. It's just all through here. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that, what's that word? Believeth on me, hath everlasting life. This is what he's talking about. He's talking about eternal life and the way to have it by believing on him, by coming to him, by partaking of him. And he satisfies. Jesus told that woman, you'll, you'll thirst again if you drink of this water. And you eat that bread I described to you a while ago, you're going to get hungry four hours later. At least I do. But Jesus satisfies. So that's what's going on here. Jesus is gauging their sincerity. I, I really like something that A.W. Tozer once said. He made this statement, God waits to be wanted. Don't you love that? God waits to be wanted. And the French mathematician Blaise Pascal, who's also a theologian, said this, in faith there is enough light for those who want to believe and enough shadows to blind those who don't. There's the balance. And that's what's going on here in this passage. So let's talk the second thing about life-giving words. Did you ever notice an oddity? Did you ever notice something a little strange? Did you ever notice how words of Jesus that seem hard and repel some people or turn some people away are the very words that are a source of life and nourishment to others? Isn't that a paradox? You can explain it, but let's talk about these lessons then. First of all, you know, gospel work can be discouraging. There's no, there's no, there's no question of that. Then and now, there are plenty of people whose interest in Jesus is purely selfish. We've already seen that. The political, the temporal, the physical. Vending machine Christianity. But I'll tell you something else. If you look at verse 61, it got down to some of these people who called themselves his disciples. Did you notice that? And it says, when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, now watch this question here. This is another question he asks. Doth this offend you? Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'll tell you something. If you're true to the word of God, there's no way to get rid of the fact that the message is an offense to some. I'm not, I'm not advocating for us to be cantankerous. I'm not advocating for us, you know, I love this word. I'm not advocating for us to be curmudgeons. You know what that is, old cranky old, I'm on the wrong side of bed. 
always looking to kind of be abrasive to people. You're not going to win people to Christ that way. God doesn't need that from us. God needs gentleness and meekness from us. But I'll tell you, at the same point, no matter what you do, no matter how careful you are, no matter how much you try to find the right entrance, you can never change the fact that there is a certain offense to the message of the cross. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 31, Paul said, This gospel that I preach is the power of God unto salvation, but he also made the point that to the Jews, it's a stumbling block, that's an offense. And to the Greeks, it's foolishness. They think it's nuts. Doesn't agree with their philosophy. To the Jews, it's an offense. The idea of their Messiah being crucified. Did you know why? And Paul said to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1, If I yet preach circumcision, then is the offense of the cross ceased? What's he saying? He's saying, well, fellas, if I want to get along with you, I'd just preach circumcision. I'd just tell people that you can be saved through religious ritual and observance. Just like today, if I wanted to get along with everybody out there, what I would tell them is, well, if you just uh, be sure that you're baptized and your name is on the church roll, everything will be fine. Be sure you light a candle at least once a week. Or be sure you do this or do that. Because you know what? Anytime I do that, I'm appealing to pride. You don't think so, but it's true. Why I'm appealing to pride is because what I'm telling people is exactly what they want to hear. I'm telling people there's something you can do. That's exactly what people want to hear. I can contribute. I'm good enough that if I add a little bit of religion to the life I live, as long as the good outweighs the bad, I can kind of get there. I'll be all right. But wait a minute. When someone comes along and says, no, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And Paul said to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. He told in the book of Titus, the readers there, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. If you start preaching that message to people, all of a sudden it makes them feel like, oh, you mean I'm not good enough? You mean I can't do anything to help myself out to get there? I don't know if you've ever done this or not. You could look it up later. But there's an interesting story about one of Rembrandt's paintings. And it's called the Three Crosses, and it's exactly what you would expect it to be. You look there, and you see the most central thing is the cross. Jesus is on the cross. And then you begin to look around at the people around the cross, the people that Rembrandt has drawn, and you can see by their facial expressions, or you can see by what they're participating, or what they're doing, that they are a part of the hostile crowd. So you get the impression, okay, these are Jesus' adversaries. These are the people who nailed him to the cross. Now, art critics say that if you're careful, now you can do this, but this is what art critics say about it, that if you look off into the shadows in one corner of the painting, that you will see, uh, almost you miss it because it's in the shadows, but you see a face painted in. Art critics say they believe Rembrandt painted his own face in, drew his own face in. Why? 
because he was saying this, beloved. He was saying, I was in that crowd. My sins nailed him there. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed by pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. It's not easy. It's not easy to confess you're a sinner. It's not easy to accept the truth of the gospel that, look, I am lost, hell-bent, undone, and on my way to an eternity of separation from God. Apart from God's grace and the blood of Jesus Christ, I have no hope. That's humbling. Pride appeals if I preach works. I'll tell you another thing, and we have to quit this as well, but we will never be a majority in this world. The Bible tells us that. Many are called, but few are chosen. So there can be discouragements to gospel work, and if you've come here today and you've kind of become discouraged, whether it's with gospel work or just with other things going on in your own life, join the club. It's not just you, it's everyone, it's me, it's I think that discouragement has to be one of the most worn tools in the devil's toolbox. And it, it's sad, isn't it? I mean, you know, we realize we shouldn't, and we get over it a day or two later, it's afflicted us again. Don't you feel bad about that, especially when you know better? So let's close the message by looking at not just the fact that gospel work can be discouraging, because you don't really need me to tell you that, you already know. but how about the fact that gospel work can be encouraging? There are two quick thoughts here. Did you know the reason that gospel work can also be encouraging, and Jesus puts it in this passage, is because there is a result that's assured. Yes, you and I have a role to play as humans. That's amazing that God would give us that, that God would make us witnesses, that God would give us the opportunity to be laborers in his vineyard and to be a part, to be, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, co-laborers with God. Can you imagine that? A co-laborer with God. That's a privilege that's beyond description. To be a part of God's work. But sometimes, beloved, it just helps you to back off and realize, you know, it's not all me. Why I'm discouraged is because I'm thinking about me and I'm not thinking about the fact that there's something bigger than me, broader than me, that God is doing, and God is going to see it through, and God never fails. Listen, when Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18 to Peter, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He didn't say to Peter, You're Peter, and upon this rock I, I'm going to try and build my church. And we'll see how we do as long as the forces of evil don't become too powerful. No, it's precisely the opposite. He says, I am going to build my church and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. And you need to understand the picture that's in that verse because the picture that's in that verse is, is the, ch the church of Jesus Christ is storming the gates of hell. It's not the other way around. It's the picture of the fact that that, that the church of Jesus Christ is storming the gates of hell and no matter how much opposition Satan puts up, it's never enough. God's always bigger. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And it's in this passage. So look at, for example, quickly at John 6:37. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. 
And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. You believe that? But see, that takes us to a little different level. We get worried about it sometimes because, oh, we're not sure what that means. All that the Father hath given me, we'll just let it say what it says and quit trying to invent reasons why it doesn't say what it says. At the very least, it says that what is happening in this current age is Jesus Christ is building this church. He's calling out from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation a people for himself. He's not going to fail in that work. He is going to accomplish that work and every soul for whom Christ died who is given to him by his Father will ultimately come to faith in Jesus Christ and be a part of God's kingdom. And I need to remember that sometimes when I'm out laboring in the vineyard. You know, God, I don't have control over how God is going to use me. He sometimes comes up with stuff that, you know, it's off, not what we're thinking. But Jesus says that the Father sent the Son into the world. He also sent the Holy Spirit into the world. And in verse 63, we have a reference to the Spirit. Jesus says the, the flesh doesn't profit. No good's going to come of that. But it's the Spirit that quickeneth. All right, now, this passage says it, right? The Father hath sent the Son into the world. We know that. Jesus says it in this passage. Jesus sent the Spirit into the world. Why did he do that? Because there's something big going on. God is calling a people out of this world unto his name. We're told that in Titus. A people of his own. Peculiar, the King James says. It doesn't mean we have to be strange. It means a people of his own. That's what God is doing during this age. And he's using men and women and boys and girls to do that. But he's doing that. And he's doing it every day. People are being saved. We don't see a lot of it in America because, unfortunately, our culture is kind of getting to the place where, you know, there's, a, there's such a hostility in today's world against spiritual things. But, you know, America's not the whole show. And it's really important to realize that. We have a young lady, we can't really even communicate through her, that our church supported, of course the church still does, but uh, she's in China. And you can't really communicate with her lest the Chinese, you know, get, see what you're saying and figure out that's why she's really there. But she tells you stories of thousands and thousands of people in China coming to Jesus Christ. That's why I commend you. That's why it's so important for us to hear from our missionaries because it helps us realize, you know, on our little corner it can be discouraging sometimes. In our little communities it can be discouraging sometimes, but we're not the whole show. And God will use us if we're faithful. But there's people that God is working in and through all over the place. Not only is there an assured result, but there will always be those who genuinely believe the strangest thing in the world, you can go about anywhere and sooner or later you'll bump into somebody. It's like if you're walking with the Lord, you'll know them before you ever know them. Did you ever notice that? You can walk into a place and you, say, you look at, I walk into a restaurant sometimes and I'll take note of somebody who says the blessing. Yeah, I can just tell a little demeanor that's different about them. And I'll be watching them. And then all of a sudden their food will come and they'll pray and ask the blessing. There's been a many a time my wife will tell you, I'll walk right up to that table after I get ready to leave and say, thank you. Thank you for giving thanks to the Lord for your food. I have a habit of doing the same thing with policemen and service people. 
I'll walk up to them and say, thank you for your service. I think sometimes we need to be an encouragement one to another, don't we? There will always be people who genuinely believe. You see that in verse 67. We're going to close with this because, you know, there are so many people who throw off on Peter, and I made up my mind a long time ago as a preacher that I wasn't going to ever do that. I hear preachers do that, and I think to myself, buddy, you've got one finger pointed at Peter, and you've got three coming back in your own direction. You better watch out. You didn't walk on the water anyway. We can always throw off on Peter because he doubted and began to sink, but nobody else has done that. Nobody else stood up on the day of Pentecost and preached and had 3,000 people saved. So when Jesus asks this question that seems to have a certain amount of frustration and discouragement attached to it, will ye also go away? How about this? Instead of always talking about how Peter's got his foot in his mouth, how about this? Because this is a bell ringer. Look what he says. Then Simon Peter. He was always the spokesman. So for, for better or for worse, you know, it's a little bit like marriage. For better or for worse, you know, I mean, he, he always had something to say. Well, this is one of those times it was for better. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Now, don't you just love the simplicity of that? Where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And we believe. Don't you know that was music to Jesus' ears? And we believe and are sure that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it was that same work that, that I'm talking to you about because on an earlier occasion in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said to him, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. But my Father which is in heaven. This is the work, beloved. It's bigger than you and me. He uses us, but it's the Holy Spirit working through us. It's the program of redemption in which we are involved, and it doesn't all revolve around us. What is it then? We have to fight off discouragement. It seems like it's a daily comer. I don't know how you get rid of that. There's ways to get rid of it, but you can't get rid of it totally. I want to close a little story that the Daily Bread told a number of years ago. It was about a young lady, and she wanted to teach Sunday school. It was a little manufacturing town in Scotland, had a class full of poverty-stricken boys. That wouldn't be very encouraging, would it, really? Well, there was a boy in the class that seemed like he was very unpromising. And his name was Bob. There you go, Brother Bob. The name was Bob. Well, after a couple of Sundays, he didn't come back. So they had given him a set of clothes to come in, but he didn't come back. So the teacher chased after him. She found him. The suit of clothes they'd given to him was all dirty and soiled, but the teacher encouraged him. She sort of, you know, girded up her loins and made strong and encouraged him to come back to Sunday school and got him another set of clothes. He came back to Sunday school, was there for a little while, quit again. So she went to the superintendent and she said, I'm really discouraged. I'm just completely discouraged about Bob. She said, I, I, I don't know. I'm just ready to give up. 
And the superintendent said, don't please, please don't do that. I sense that, that we might be just ready to reach him. Let's give it one more try. So went out, got a third suit of clothes for Bob. He came back to Sunday school, but this time he stayed. After a while, he became a believer. And after a little while more, a number of years, you know who this Bob I'm telling you is, was Robert Morrison, who later became the first Protestant missionary to China. He translated the Bible into the language so that millions of people heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what is it then, beloved, this morning? Take heart. We must all take heart. We must all remember what Paul tells us in Galatians 6, 9. Be not weary in well-doing, for in due season ye shall reap if ye faint not. Father, we thank you for this day you gave us. We thank you for the privilege of coming to God's house